Jesus has done everything necessary for our salvation. We have been set free from the law and from the curse of death and sin. And God gets all the praise and all the glory because he has done it all. So let's go to him now in prayer and ask him to be with us as we turn to his word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are our utterly faithful God. And you have made promises to us that you always keep. You have promised to be with us when we gather and when we look to your word this way. We pray that you would be faithful to us yet this morning again. Father, we pray that you would ground us on the solid rock who is your son. Ground us and set our feet on the solid rock of the promises that you have made to us that you will keep. We, pro- we pray, Father, that as you do that, that you would impart faith, sustain our faith and strengthen it, sanctify us, make us more like Christ, we pray. Transform our minds and our hearts as we sit under your word this morning. We pray for all of these things to happen in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So we are nearing the end of this sermon series through Genesis. It's wild how quickly these sermon series come and go sometimes. This is the 21st of 22 sermons, so we are near the end. Just a brief introduction, really an orienting for those of you who may be newer to the book of Genesis or at least haven't been with us through this series, kind of where we have been in recent weeks. Many in the room are familiar with the story of Joseph, how his brothers, out of hatred and envy, sell him into servitude. He is taken down into Egypt by traitors and ends up in the house of a man named Potiphar. And through extraordinary providence, the Lord brings him up into a role of significant power to be vice ruler beside Pharaoh in all the land of Egypt. We know that because of what his brothers did to him, Joseph was separated from not only his brothers, but his father, He had been separated from his family for a number of years, nearly two decades. And through the courses of events, including a worldwide famine, Joseph's brothers end up coming to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain. All of this has been going down in the recent chapters that we have been considering. At this point, we find ourselves looking at chapters 46 and 7 this morning. Joseph and his brothers have been reconciled. The Lord has brought about this reconciliation Joseph has told his brothers that because of what God has done, they need not carry guilt or distress around anymore over what they did to him. Joseph's desire is to get his father and his entire household down to Egypt so that he, Joseph, can provide for them and watch over them. And then as chapter 45 closed, Joseph's brothers go back to Israel, go back to Jacob, their father, from Egypt, this second trip they had made down, to tell Jacob that Joseph is in fact alive. Jacob was under the impression for a number of years that his son was dead. When Jacob hears the news, when he heard it, he was stunned, his heart was numb, the text says, and he could not believe it. But then he heard the testimony of Joseph through Joseph's brothers. And he saw the gifts that Joseph had sent back to his father. And in Jacob's own words, having heard the testimony and having 
seen the gifts, he said, it's enough. He would go and see his son. Joseph is, in fact, alive, he says. All of that sounds familiar. Joseph had sent his word, and he had sent gifts. And his father believed. This is just what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. He has given us his word, and he has given us gifts, in particular baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it is through these, his word and his gifts, that Christ's spirit imparts, sustains, and nourishes faith. We have come, we have come to believe that Jesus is alive, amen? And he has used his word and his gifts to make that so. And it is to his word that we now turn. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Genesis 46. We're going to be surveying again Genesis 46 and 7. This morning we have heard the text read in our midst already today. My plan for the rest of our time is to consider this text in five points of significantly varying length. Some of them long, some of them quite short. So keeping you on your toes this morning in that respect. After those five points, I will offer an additional meditation, an additional reflection to conclude the message this morning. So all that by way of just introduction and setting the table, let's begin with point number one. Israel leaves the promised land. Israel leaves the promised land. We're just going to look at the first four verses of chapter 46 for a minute. This is a turning point of sorts in the record of the scriptures. From Genesis chapter 12 through the end of chapter 45, most everything, with a couple of exceptions, most everything has been happening with God's people in and around the promised land. But from this point, Genesis 46, 1, all the way through the end of Deuteronomy, the rest of the book of Moses, the geography shifts God's people will be in Egypt, and God's people will be in the wilderness. Sojourners, they have been. Exiles, they will be. Hold on to that. In verse 1, Israel, and again remember, Israel is the new name that God had given Jacob. It's used interchangeably in the text. I probably will this morning. Israel goes through Beersheba on his way down to Egypt. Now, Beersheba has been a significant place in the lives of the patriarchs, in the life of Abraham, and in particular in the life of Isaac. The Lord had appeared to Isaac there at Beersheba to reiterate covenant promises to him. Isaac had built an altar there and had offered sacrifices to the Lord there. And we read here, At the end of verse 1, that Israel, Isaac's son, offers sacrifices to the Lord there in Beersheba, just as his father had done. And remember, he is doing this on his way out of the promised land, on his way into exile in Egypt. Now, on these sacrifices, we're going to think about this for a minute together. These sacrifices that Israel, that Jacob is offering, Coming out of the gates kind of hot here with the kind of reflection, implication, something for us to consider together. First thing that we can say about these sacrifices is this. It is not Israel's attempt to appease the Lord, 
on his way down to Egypt. It's not his attempt to just check the right boxes so that the Lord will bless him. I think we often think that way. Let me, I've got this big thing coming up. Let me make sure that I'm doing the right stuff so that the Lord will bless me, that the Lord will watch over me. I need to do my part so God will do his, right? That's how we tend to think. It's not what's going on here. Consider the circumstances. Jacob is quite literally leaving the place of the inheritance promised to him. He is leaving the land that is the type and promise of a heavenly country. Jacob has been a sojourner and he's about to be an exile for the rest of his earthly life until his death. So what about, given that, what about Jacob's faith in the Lord? How will it be sustained? His faith in God's promises, how will that be sustained and strengthened? What about his piety? And when you hear me say the word piety, think godliness that is wrought by God's Spirit. That's what piety is. How will Jacob's piety be sustained? How will it be grown? Now, what we're thinking about right now and what I'm about to say, Christians through history, not so much lately, but Christians through history have made these observations before and have said these things before. Martin Luther, John Calvin, men like that have said these things. Maybe not something that we have heard. The kind of sacrifices that Israel is offering here are not what elsewhere are called burnt offerings. It's not a sin offering. It's not a guilt offering. That's not the word that's used here. In those kinds of offerings, those kinds of sacrifices, the entire animal being offered was consumed by the altar's fire. Because those kinds of sacrifices, guilt offerings, sin offerings, and the like, were teaching God's people about atonement and what it takes to make satisfaction for sin. But there are other kinds of sacrifices, such as the ones here, where the worshiper would receive a portion of the sacrificed animal as well. There was a communal meal of sorts. Some of the animals sacrificed on the altar, some of it consumed by the worshiper. So, Jacob in this instance is offering such a sacrifice. He is worshiping God and he is communing with the Lord in this. And he is receiving, we trust, from God sustenance for his faith as he about, is about to enter into exile. He is receiving sustenance for his faith in the Lord and in the covenant promises God had made to him. And he is receiving from the Lord grace and strength for his piety as he is about to be an exile in a foreign land. Saints, you realize that the Lord does these same things for us just as he did for Jacob. We are sojourners and exiles like him. Remember that. We are described, Christians are, at multiple places in the Scriptures as sojourners, exiles, and pilgrims in this world on our way to our ultimate homeland. And the Lord 
sustains our faith, and he sustains and strengthens our piety through means that he gives us. Every Lord's Day, we come here. We sit under the Word, the Word of Christ. We hear the power and the grace and the mercy and the love of Christ proclaimed. That he, the perfect God-man, the one mediator between God and man, took upon himself all of the sin of all of his people of all time and died once and for all and paid for all of it. We hear that. We hear that Christ, truly human, kept God's law perfectly every moment of his earthly life. And his righteousness is counted to us as our righteousness by faith. We hear of how he entered into this world. He took on flesh and blood because the children have flesh and blood. And we are enslaved by the fear of death, and we are enslaved to Satan. And Jesus took on flesh so that he might conquer the one who has the power of death and that he might set us free. We hear that. We hear his words. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will receive rest for your souls. We hear that. Oh, how he loves us. And we hear that after he died for us, he got up from the grave, that he's alive still, his sacrifice vindicated, he reigns at the right hand of his Father, and he's coming back one day to get us to raise us imperishable that we might be like him and that we might be with him forever and with each other in him forever. We hear that when we come here. And the Lord is present with us, giving grace and strength for our faith, giving grace and strength for our godliness. We are sanctified even as we do these things together. We come and we hear the word. We come to this table every Lord's Day and we put the cup in our mouths. We put the bread in our mouths. And as surely as we do that, Christ died for us. He's alive now and He's coming back again. And the Lord is present, giving grace and strength for our faith and grace and strength for our godliness that we might be conformed to His image. Saints, it is good that we talk this way. We can pray that more Christians in our context would talk this way. That we would understand what in the world it is that we're doing when we come here on Sunday. You see, only God imparts faith, right? Only God. Only God sustains faith. He is faithful to do both in the lives of His children. And when it comes to sanctification being made more like Christ, growth in godliness and holiness. Only the Lord is holy. Amen? Inherently. And so, anyone else who is going to be holy will only be so because he or she is united to the Lord. Just like salvation is not achieved but is received, so too with holiness. 
We sing it often. Holiness is Christ in me. You better believe it. Amen. It is through union with Christ by faith that we are ever made holy. We receive holiness from the Lord. We do not achieve it ourselves. So you're sitting there and you're like, all right, brother, if you're talking about Jacob and he was worshiping and communing with God, his faith is being sustained and strengthened, his godliness too, you're saying that's what happens for us and God does that. That's great news. But what do we do if it's God's work? A few very simple things can be said. What do we do? If God in His Word has said that something is good and upright, pursue it with all your heart. If He has said that it is good and upright, do those things. Next thing we can say. If God in His Word has said that something is bad, that it's evil, run from it with all your strength. Fight against it with all your might. Pray for the Lord's grace that you might do those things, that you might flee from sin and pursue righteousness. And third, what do we do? We apply the means that God has given us for the sustaining and strengthening of our faith and for our growth and godliness. Those means are the Word of God. Those means are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Those means are singing. Those means are prayer. Those means are the fellowship of the saints, life in the church. We live in the church together because ours is a church-shaped devotion. It's what we do. Put your eyes back on verse 2. How kind of the Lord, right, to sustain us and to give us these things, even as He has always done. Millennia ago, He's doing the same things for His people He's doing for us now. Israel has offered these sacrifices, and in verse 2, the Lord comes and speaks to Jacob in visions in the night. And then in verses 3 and 4, we get the content of what the Lord said. He comforts Jacob, and he makes promises to him. This is what God does. He tells Jacob not to be afraid to go to Egypt. Because it's a fearful thing, right? Leaving the land I've been promised, I'm going down into the land of Egypt, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. I'm not a citizen, I'm a sojourner, I'm an exile, scary thing. Don't be afraid to go to Egypt, says the Lord, because in Egypt I will make you into a great nation. Now, that seems counterintuitive to us, does it not? Think about this. I mean, if the Lord is going to make Jacob into a great nation, why not do it in the land that God had promised to his father Abraham? Why not? To us, that makes sense. It's all coming together. Got the land already, may as well make the nation there. Suffice it to say, God often does not work how we think He would, or, if we're honest, how we think that He should. The Lord promises Jacob also that He Himself will go down to Egypt with Jacob. Israel, Jacob here, serves as representative of the nation that will bear His name. The Lord will be with His people even in a foreign land. Amen? The Lord is always with His people. He will be with His people. He will not leave them in the midst of trying circumstances. As we have noted many times, God often does His best work in the midst of circumstances such as these. 
Again, it's not the way that we think it would be and not the way that we would prefer it to be. The Lord also says that he will bring Jacob out of Egypt before he dies to be buried in the promised land and that Joseph, his beloved son, whom he hasn't seen in over 20 years, is going to be the one who will close his eyes in death. This too is a pointer to how the Lord, after a period of 400 years, will rescue the nation of Israel and bring them up out of Egypt as well. All of that by way of point number one brings us to point number two. Point one was that Israel leaves the promised land. Point two, all of Israel heads down to Egypt. All of Israel heads down to Egypt. As long as point one was, this one will be shockingly brief. We're going to look at verses 5 to 27 or just kind of consider the content of verses 5 to 27 of chapter 46 briefly. The point of those verses is that the totality of Jacob's household makes its way down to Egypt. In other words, everybody is exiled. Nobody remains in the promised land. We are given a list of Jacob's children and grandchildren ordered according to their respective mothers. The totality or completeness of this move is signified by the number 70 that we find in verse 27. The genealogy that we're given, all of these names, the sons, the daughters, the grandsons, etc. The genealogy that we're given here mirrors the beginning of a genealogy that we will find in Numbers 26. In Numbers chapter 26, that is when the people are preparing to enter the promised land after exile. So what's the significance of that, you may ask? Well, the significance of that is that the same people, the same nation who had to leave the promised land here is the same nation that will be brought back to the promised land by the Lord. He said he would do it, and he did it. That's point two. Point three, the reunion of Jacob and Joseph. The reunion of Jacob and Joseph. We're going to look at verses 28 through 34 of chapter 46. So at the end of learning that the entire household makes its way from Canaan down into Egypt, we're told that Jacob sends Judah, one of his sons, ahead. Judah has taken this role of kind of leadership and representation, right? We've seen that in recent weeks. Judah is sent ahead to get specific directions and instructions from Joseph. Then when Joseph knows that his family is in Egypt, in the land of Goshen, a region in Egypt, he prepares his chariot and heads that way. And then he and his father see each other for the first time in over two decades. It's a big deal. We've thought about this a number of times. Just the fact that you know, we read these stories, we need to remember that this is very human, what is happening here. The Lord works in and through the lives of living, breathing human beings like us who think and feel like we think and feel. Joseph falls, it says, just kind of collapses on his father's neck and weeps. And he weeps there a good while, we're told. No kidding. So what we would expect to happen. It's a very sweet moment, a sweet time of reunion. Moments like that, when you read them, this kind of restoration and reunion and joy, you know, peace and 
rejoicing and celebration after separation and exile and suffering makes you wonder what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. A lot of times we can have our hope sort of clouded, the sun doesn't break through. It's good to remember that this is not all there is. Jacob, for his part, is now content to die. He says, it's all right if I go now. I'm okay with that. I've seen my beloved son again. I know that you're still alive. It's enough. Joseph gives some instructions to his family. He's already determined, we even read this in previous chapters, he's already determined that he wants his family to dwell in this region, the land of Goshen, this particular area in Egypt. But he's got to get this done appropriately before Pharaoh. There's diplomatic processes that need to be adhered to. So he tells his family exactly how he's going to present this whole thing to Pharaoh, and then he coaches them on exactly how they are to answer Pharaoh's questions. Here's what you say. He knows the ropes. It's going to be fine. The fact that Joseph's family are shepherds is a factor. We're just told that the Egyptians do not look highly upon shepherds. In fact, they're an abomination to them. And so the thought is that this is going to work out fine because Pharaoh will be happy to have my family in Egypt, but he's not going to want to have you guys too close because of what you do. So the land of Goshen, it seems like it's going to work. Before we move on from this section, though, a significant observation to make for us to just think about together. Based upon the biblical record, the biblical witness, the biblical testimony, Jacob is never told the details of what happened with Joseph. Never is conveyed to him. More pointedly, based on the biblical record, Joseph himself never says to his dad, here's what my brothers did to me. It's a big deal on a couple of levels. I mean, one, remember how Joseph operated as a teenager, right? He was always happy to kind of snitch on his brothers. Here's what they've done. Pretty significant here that he doesn't do that. Praise the Lord for that grace in his life, that growth. But even more significantly, we have considered how Joseph is a type of Christ, how he is a shadow and a pointer to the Lord Jesus. And I think it's a fair observation to make that in this way, not telling his father what his brothers have done to him, he is a type of Christ displayed. It is as though Joseph's word to his father in all of this is, you know, it doesn't matter what my brothers have done to me. Let's not keep a record of their wrongs. All that matters, Dad, is that I'm alive. So too with Christ, right? On account of Him, the Father remembers our sins no more. All that matters in the eyes of the Father is that Jesus is alive. Right? That He made the sacrifice necessary. Fulfilled the righteousness required. And he's vindicated in his resurrection. And because Christ is alive, our sins are drowned. And because Christ is alive, we are declared righteous. And the Father looks on him and all of us who are in him by faith with delight. It's a wonderful thought. Point four. Jacob and his family before Pharaoh. Point four. Jacob and his family before Pharaoh. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12 of chapter 47. So there is now this kind of formal audience 
before Pharaoh. You can imagine it, right? The great like, palace complex, all of these kinds of things. The most powerful man in the world at the time. Formal audience in his presence. Joseph reports to Pharaoh that his family has arrived in Egypt and they're currently in the land of Goshen. Remember in the previous chapter when Pharaoh heard about all of this was going on with Joseph and his brothers and the reconciliation and all of that? Pharaoh himself had extended an invitation for all of Joseph's family to come to Egypt. That had already happened. And at the same time, Joseph is dotting his I's and crossing his T's and he's handling this well. So he's reporting to Pharaoh as he should. He selects, we're told, five of his brothers, the ones presumably who would speak well and carry themselves well. They're going to represent the family. So Pharaoh asks them, just as Joseph had said that he would, asks them their occupation. And they answer as Joseph had told them to. They're shepherds, just as their fathers were. They indicate that they have come to sojourn in Egypt and ask if they can dwell in the land of Goshen. Pharaoh responds favorably. Joseph's father and brothers are to settle in the best of the land, he says. Again, you see the Lord's kindness to his people here. They are to settle in the land of Goshen. And Pharaoh goes even so far as to say that if there are some particularly competent men among them, Pharaoh's like, why don't you just have my own livestock entrusted to their care? Things are going well. And then Joseph brings his father. He brings Jacob in to see Pharaoh. And Jacob blesses Pharaoh, which biblically is no small matter, because in Scripture, the greater blesses the lesser, not the other way around. It's an interesting thought. So Pharaoh asks Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? How old are you? Maybe he looked old. Not sure. He is old. Right? And Jacob responds in a particular way. The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Notice he doesn't say I'm 130 years old. He says the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. He sees his life as that of a sojourner, as that of a pilgrim. We'll come back to that later in our time this morning. And then he goes on, few and evil, few and hard, few and difficult, right, have been the days of the years of my life. God's people have felt like that, amen? Few and difficult. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojournings. So I'm not as old, actually, as my father Isaac or my grandfather Abraham were. Jacob then blesses Pharaoh again and goes out. And we learn in the final couple of verses of this section, verses 11 and 12, that Joseph provides well for his family. They settle in the land of Goshen, in the best of the land, precisely in the region of Ramesses, which was a city in that region. And Joseph makes sure that they have plenty of provisions, enough for all of them. Which brings us to point five. Point five, Joseph provides for the Egyptians. Joseph provides for the Egyptians. We're going to look at verse 13 through the end of chapter 47. In verses like 13 to 26, we read about how the famine continues. The people of Egypt are desperate. They will die without food. Remember that this famine is seven years long. So they'd been coming already to buy grain from Joseph in the first year or two or so of the famine. But now their money is gone. So in all of this, just keep in mind here that Joseph is doing two things. He's acting as a servant of Pharaoh. 
He has a job to do in his post in the land, and at the same time, he is operating in such a way that will provide for the people. The people end up selling their livestock for grain, and then they end up selling their land and themselves into servitude in exchange for grain, and all of that plays itself out over the course of years. Joseph makes an arrangement with the people that they will work the land and they'll give Pharaoh one-fifth, 20% of the crop. The other 80% they are to keep for themselves and their families. Now, ancient Near Eastern historical data, as I studied it and read about it, ancient Near Eastern historical data bears out that this arrangement was quite generous on Joseph's part. The people would get to keep a lot more than is typical. The people are grateful You can see this in the beginning of verse 25. They say to Joseph, you have saved our lives. Now, as kind and generous as Joseph is to the Egyptians, which he is, his salvation still had strings attached. Which is where we realize that Joseph may be a type of Christ, but he's not Jesus. Because... When Christ comes as Savior, the offer is free, and there are no strings attached. In verses 27 to 31, just the end of the chapter, we read that Israel, the people, the nation, they settled in Egypt in the land of Goshen, and that they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So think back to chapter 46 and verse 3 where we began our time where the Lord said, don't be afraid to go down into Egypt because I'm going to make a great nation out of you down there. It's happening. This also looks forward to what we will read of, for example, in Exodus chapter 1 where the Israelites had become so numerous, such a substantial nation that it was becoming problematic in the eyes of future Egyptian rulers who did not know Joseph. The Lord is keeping his promises to his people even in this foreign land. We learn that Jacob has reached 147 years of age. He lives 17 more years from the time he goes down into Egypt until he is near death. And then from this point, like the very end of chapter 47 through the end of chapter 49, all of this is going to take place around the deathbed of Jacob, the patriarch, the namesake, Israel. Jacob, in this instance, is going to speak directly to Joseph, his beloved son. And he asks Joseph to promise him that he will not be buried in Egypt, but will be buried with his fathers in Canaan. That matters because that's the land that the Lord had promised to give to Abraham and his children. Joseph says, he swears to it, Dad, I'll take care of it. So that's where we are at the conclusion of this portion of the narrative today, which brings us to our final reflection, our closing reflection for our time together this morning. I want us to think together, meditate and reflect upon this fact, this truth. As we have seen very clearly demonstrated in Jacob in this text, God's people in this new covenant era, Christians, Christians are sojourners and exiles in this world. We're going to think about that. We are sojourners and we are exiles in this world. We are pilgrims. We don't have a permanent residence, in other words. This is not our home. Put your eyes back on chapter 47 and verse 9. I just want to read these words again. When Pharaoh asks Jacob, how old are you? He says, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of my life. 
Saints, we are citizens of this common kingdom, citizens of this world. For the vast majority in the room, we are citizens of these United States. But our primary identity is that we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our permanent residence. Like This is something that we need to remind ourselves of regularly. Our permanent residence is in resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. That matters for our perspective. We are awaiting that to happen, to be our reality, for our forever home to be revealed to us. Now, I generally don't make a practice of using my family to illustrate anything or talk about much from the pulpit. But my oldest child, he doesn't understand everything. But there is something that the Lord has, in His grace, kind of driven deep into this little guy's mind. And it is this reality that one day Christ is coming back and that we will be raised with Him and all will be well. He says that to his dad regularly. And it ministers to me that he clings to the hope of the resurrection and often speaks far better than he even knows or understands. It's a reminder, right, that these truths, though we can never plumb the depths of them, are simple enough for our children to understand them and embrace them. In part, my son speaks that way because God has made everything beautiful in its time. And also, he has put eternity in man's heart. He speaks that way because God has said through his apostle, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in this hope we are saved. Amen? Amen. Consider the words of the writer of the Hebrews. We've cited Hebrews a lot as we've made it through Genesis, and that is no accident. Chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. Read it this afternoon. Listen to it right now. These words are penned about the patriarchs, about Abraham, about Isaac, and about Jacob and their wives. These, the writer says, all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. So too will be true of us if we die before Christ returns. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, Canaan, right? 
They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We, like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives, we too desire a better country, namely a heavenly one. And God is not ashamed to be called our God because he's prepared one for us. Now, given all of that, that we just thought about, what is it that we need most fundamentally in this thing called the church? If we're pilgrims, if we're sojourners, if we're exiles in this world, we're seeking a homeland, a homeland that we've been promised on the one hand, that Christ has secured for us, but we're not there yet. And in the meantime, between here and there, we face trials and temptations on every side, and we face thousands, if not millions, of spiritual dangers. What do we need in the church? Well, in short, we need sustenance, and we need protection, and we need help with all of that that I just described. The fact that we're not home yet, the fact that we face trials and temptations, and the fact that we face so many spiritual dangers, we need sustenance and protection and help with that. And in the plan of God, the church is meant to provide it. The ministry of the church is meant to protect, sustain, and nourish the saints as we make our way to the heavenly country. God, this is important, God has ordained the ministry of the church not to prepare the saints to build heaven on earth, but to prepare us to trust Christ and wait for the new heavens and the new earth. The church is a place of worship for weary sojourners, weary pilgrims who face spiritual dangers and who still struggle with sin. For pilgrims who, because of those dangers and struggles, battle fears and troubled consciences. The church is a place of worship for those who come seeking peace, peace with God, peace in our hearts. For those who need to be reminded that they are forgiven. Who need to be with their brothers and sisters who face these same battles and need these same reminders. Thank God for the church. The Lord is always faithful to us. He sustains us in the church just as he did Jacob's family in exile in Egypt. And how does he do that? He does that, hear me, he does that through old promises, not new revelation in the midst of exile. He sustains and protects us through old promises, not new revelation in the midst of exile. And through the ministry of the church, we build our lives on those promises. We together cling to them. We read them. We preach them. We sing them. We pray them. We are immersed in them. Baptism. We eat and drink them. Lord's table. We need to be grounded, saints, over and over again in the objective promises of God in Christ. I'll put it to you this way. 
from your pastor's perspective. We do not need a religion that consists of our devout feelings or good intentions. We need a religion that consists of the rock-solid promises of our utterly faithful God. Promises like these. Just sit and listen. Don't make notes, just listen. Don't worry about the reference, just listen to the promises that your God has made to you. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. 
When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Thanks be to God. It is precisely in exile that we need the promises of God. And he's given us some promises. Amen? He has. And it is precisely in exile that we need the Lord's presence with us. And he is with us. That's what he said. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray. 